Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast with a banquet of the juiciest bits from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, Miami's homeowners try to fend off climate change, why queens are more warmongering than kings, and how the horse shaped the history of mankind. But first, Britain's missing middle was our cover line this week. Britain's election is upon us this week as voters head to the booths. While both of the main parties stretch the country in illiberal directions, we argued, our vote would go to the party hovering in the centre. The party leaders could hardly differ more in their style and beliefs. And yet a thread links the two possible winners of this election. Though they sit on different points of the left-right spectrum, the Tory and Labour leaders are united in their desire to pull up Britain's drawbridge to the world. Both Mrs May and Mr Corbyn would each, in their own way, step back from the ideas that have made Britain prosper – its free markets, open borders and internationalism. They would junk a political settlement that has lasted for nearly 40 years and influenced a generation of Western governments. Whether left or right prevails, the loser will be liberalism. On the left, Labour's Jeremy Corbyn is the most dangerous candidate of the lot, we maintained. No economic liberal, Mr Corbyn does not much value personal freedom either. Mr Corbyn has spent a career claiming to stand for the oppressed while backing oppressors. But on the right, a wobbly leader doesn't inspire too much confidence either. She wanted the election campaign to establish her as a strong and stable Prime Minister. It has done the opposite. In January, we called her Theresa Maybe for her indecisiveness. Now the centrepiece of her manifesto, a plan to make the elderly pay more for social care, was reversed after just four days. Faced with the dismal choice of the two main parties, our vote went to the Liberal Democrats. Their environmentalism is sometimes knee-jerk, as in their opposition to new runways and fracking. The true Liberals in the party jostle with left-wingers, including Tim Farron, who is leading them to a dreadful result. But against a backward-looking Labour Party and an inward-looking Tory party about to compound its historic mistake of a Brexit, they get our vote. Leaving Britain's politicians battling to get into number 10, we head now to our Europe section, where we report on another rift emerging between the sexes. Who is more bellicose, kings or queens? An article had the answers. Women were less likely than men to support the Vietnam War, the Gulf War or the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. They commit far fewer murders. They're less likely to favour drone strikes. For scholars such as Steven Pinker, a psychologist, and Francis Fukuyama, a political scientist, these are grounds for thinking that a world run by women 
would be more peaceful. I'll second that and I'll take on anyone who disagrees with me. Though, according to European history and a new study, this assertion could be misplaced. They studied how often European rulers went to war between 1480 and 1913. Over 193 reigns, they found that states ruled by queens were 27% more likely to wage war than those ruled by kings. It isn't all the fault of queens, however. Men, seeing them as soft targets, tended to attack them. After Mary Tudor became Queen of England in 1553, the Protestant reformer John Knox declared the monstrous regiment of women unfit to rule. But these weren't all just defensive damsels in distress. Oh no, far from it. Queens, the researchers found, were more likely to gain new territory. After overthrowing her husband, Catherine the Great expanded her empire by some 200,000 square miles, that's 518,000 square kilometres, which is a lot of territory, even for Russia. And married queens were more aggressive than single queens or kings. Take what you want from that. On now to our United States section, where we've reported on the Floridians trying to fend off climate change. As an article highlighted, Miami's homeowners are readying defences to keep the rising sea out of their mansions. Turrets and terracotta tiles, palm trees and pillars adorn properties on Lagos Island. Trucks roll by on their way to plots where homes are being torn down or built up. There are a lot more people making improvements here than fleeing, says Josh Gelfman, a developer. But the well-heeled residents of the island must go to ever greater lengths to keep out the rising tide. By 2030, the average sea level in southeast Florida is likely to be 6 to 10 inches above the mean level seen in 1992. By 2060, between 14 and 26 inches. By 2100, the Atlantic could devastate the area because of Florida's porous limestone bedrock and shallow water table, which allow water to well up even behind sea walls. As the world changes, new guests are piling onto the island. Seasonal tides already bring flooding and aquatic visitors to the Miami area, octopuses in garages and barracudas in swimming pools. Time then to dip into our other podcasts this week. It's been a rather bumpy bank holiday weekend for Britain's premier airline, British Airways, as an IT failure caused flights to be cancelled all over the world. On Money Talks, our correspondent Charles Reed explained that cutbacks may have helped in the financial short term, but the company will have to brace for long-term damage. Perhaps BA's management has uh, cut back too hard on their IT infrastructure. This is a big false economy. Yes, it makes the quarterly results over the last few quarters look good, but the long-term, the damage to BA's premium brand could outweigh any of those savings. In the week ahead, we explored the current state of the Congo. Our Middle East and Africa editor, Christopher Lockwood, revealed why the country is a tinderbox at the heart of Africa. Various conflicts are still playing out across the country. What's the most worrying at the moment? The really bad one at the moment is the Kasai fighting. This began last summer after a customary chief was, was denied the succession uh, by the government. They said they would give the job to, to, to someone who was much more favourable to them. So then his supporters started attacking the government. The government cracked down very hard. There have been allegations of government sweeps through sympathetic villages, mass graves. No one really knows because it's such an incredibly dangerous place to visit. And in our science and technology show, Babbage, 
we examine the creative flair of artificial intelligence. Our guest, John Bruner, talked us through a classical composition made by a machine learning algorithm. This is a really nice illustration of the current state of generative AI. This neural network is convincingly reproducing the low-level texture of classical music, you know, the scales and arpeggios and so on. But it isn't really grasping the high-level structure of classical music, the ways that you'd expect the melodies and harmonies to develop over the course of the composition. It is the structure that requires a lot of higher-order reasoning, and true creativity requires even higher-order reasoning than that, plus a great deal of context from, you know, the human experience. So this is the gap that's closing fairly quickly right now, but computers will likely never be able to understand and imitate the most complex creative processes of human artists. So machines may have some work to do before they rival human creativity. Our final selection for you, taken from our print issue, explores something that gave a helping hand, or rather four sturdy legs, to human development. In our Books and Arts section, a piece took a look at the horse and how this graceful animal shaped the history of mankind. 6,000 years ago, wild horses roamed the plains and steppes of the world. They were like many prey, fleet of foot, alert to threats and largely unaggressive. Then, in the Copper Age, the Botai people, east of the Urals, found a way to hunt them for their meat and skins and later to domesticate them. In these equine beasts, man found the best of partners. Horses are seen to be quick-witted and forgiving. Unusually, unlike almost all mammals other than humans, they sweat to cool themselves, which means they can work harder and run faster for a long time. This last attribute was central to the horse's usefulness. Two new books canter through the relationship between man and horse. Neither book purports to be a comprehensive equi-story, Instead, by arranging their narratives thematically rather than chronologically, both authors have granted themselves the freedom to range as widely as the ancient wild horses, the Taki and the Tarpan once did, grazing on a pasture rich in anecdote, allegory and pathos, as well as in historical importance. In the age of the horse, Susanna Forrest presents her thesis. That horsepower allowed people to explore, to conquer and to develop. Britain owed its industrial and agricultural revolutions not just to gentlemen engineers and labouring masses, but to the broad chests, tree-like legs and willing nature of its horses, she writes. And in farewell to the horse, Ulrich Rauf pays homage to the creature as a prominent figure throughout history. Mr Rauf gallops through time and space, art criticism, philosophy and economics, Platting in tales of Kafka, Tolstoy and Comanche, the hard-drinking stallion who was the only non-Indian survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. In the developed world, horses have been replaced by machines, and our reviewer explained that the irony is a hard one to miss. Humans tamed horses and put them to work until they invented something that worked at greater speed and lower cost, which replaced them. Could humans one day make themselves obsolescent in the same way? An apple and a sugar lump for thought there at the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Do keep sending us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.